Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses' work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portio. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today we are doing something different, however. We are recapping our top five movies of 2023. Um, 2023, great year for movies. Really, really agree? good. Really good. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, Barbenheimer phenomenon. Yeah. Um, really fun seeing friends who wouldn't be as into cinema as us, yeah. getting hyped about that. Um, Sorry, my notes are on my phone, that's why I'm... Yeah, I was wondering. It's not that I'm not paying attention to you. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really was the year of the blockbuster. Absolutely. Yeah. Mission yeah. Impossible, Dead yeah. Reckoning. Yeah. Um, Which Dungeons didn't do that well. but <laughs> Also didn't do that yeah. well, Dungeons yeah. Dragons. Um, but it feels like they were back in a big way. You know, people, studios replacing bets again. Sure. Guides of Galaxy 3, solid. I like. Solid, yeah. yeah. Every other superhero film that came out this year. Uh, well, Spider-Man so across the Spider-Verse. That's true, yeah. That was pretty That's good. a cartoon for babies and children. <laughs> You're making that argument. That's usually my thing. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, but also, like, all tra- jokingly making that argument, I should say, all tours and making um, very interesting movies on a kind of blockbuster scale. If they weren't really mm. blockbusters, yeah. like, um, you know, obviously Barbie and Oppenheimer, but also Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, <coughs> Babylon, The Killer, Babylon, yeah. kind of a 2022 movie. Well, I'm it's still getting not, confused yeah. about the yeah. years, but yeah. it came out in Ireland in January. Which um, is why it's on my list. But I, I thought what was cool was that there were uh, often like two, three or four interesting films to go to and see in the cinemas at like one time, mm. like throughout the year, maybe one or two weeks. It was a bit like thin on the ground, maybe because the riders strike. But like between multiplexes and art house, like there was uh, a lot of good stuff. And it was yeah. like good, good, like even if not top 20 material, just like entertaining thrillers and horrors. Like I wrote down like Knock at the Cabin, mm. Pope's Exorcist, yeah. Saltburn. Haunting in Venice, Thanksgiving. Yeah, Thanksgiving was so good. It was so good. Yeah. Um, comedies as well, like Theatre Camp, Rye Lane, Bottoms, or um, these kind of pump your fist kind of underdog dramas like Air or Dumb Money. Like they were, they were all like, pretty good. Yeah, uh, like, yeah. Um, I saw like 105 new movies, and I would say like 90 of them were like three stars and above. Mm. So I was like, Stephen Threesio strikes again. <laughs> but, and then like he also had like really fascinating art house films like Night at the Twelfth or Past Lives The Beasts Fallen Leaves A Fire Reality Bo's Afraid mm. um, really inventive Irish sci-fi Lola just want to give a shout out and then like the reissue of Stop Making Sense probably the best thing I saw in cinemas this year but I'm not putting it on my list because it's an, not a 2023 movie I don't think I've ever willingly listened to a Talking Heads song well, like Psych- Psycho Killer I know you don't like Once in a Lifetime I couldn't even tell you I couldn't even let the hum days it. go by let oh the yeah that one yeah 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 and yeah, but I I've think never... you'd love Talking Heads. Maybe you're right, but yeah. I've never like willingly gone for him. You yeah. know, life during wartime. No, you don't know that. Anyway, yeah. um, any before we get into our top fives, yeah. any honorable mentions? Um, Dungeons and Dragons, as you said. Um, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. I always have a soft spot for that. Uh, Skinner Marink. Still haven't seen Skinner. Yeah, really. I saw that in February, and 
the whole time I wa- was watching it, the hour and 40 minutes, I was like, this, it's kind of boring. Sure. It's kind of dull. That's and then what's I put left, me off watching Yeah, it. and then I left the theatre and I had full body chills for like 20 minutes. So, um, yeah. Uh, Might now, have just been February weather. <laughs> yeah, it, that could have been, yeah. But it was internal, you know. You yeah, know? Sure. Um I saw the kind of companion uh, picture to... Skin and Rink, the Outwaters, uh, illegally because it hasn't been released here. Uh, well, it was my birthday at the weekend and I got a copy of it on DVD. Holy shit. Yeah. Nice. So I'm excited to watch yeah. that. Yeah. Well, enjoy. Um, it's certainly more exciting than Skin and Rink. I will okay. say that much it's during watching it anyway. Um, yeah. Th- uh, past Lives, I really loved. Um, yeah. Great. Um, my 20 to 6, just unletterboxed. I'll just run it down quickly. Master Gardener, Paul Schrader's, um, the completion of his trilogy of mm. uh, First Reformed and Card Counter. Fair Play, great little Netflix thriller. Blackberry with um, one of the best performances of the year, Glenn Howerton. Uh, Fallen Leaves, the uh, beautiful Finnish romantic drama, comedy Aki drama. Kurushmaki. Aki Kurushmaki. Uh, Barbie, The Beasts, really good French-Spanish thriller. May December, Todd Haynes's latest. Todd Haynes, just one of the most consistent directors. Knocks it out of the park every time. Um, you have seen any of his films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked about Dark Waters and I don't know. Oh, that one. Yeah, that yeah. Good. I've seen that one. Um, you hurt my feelings. Uh, well, uh, sorry, Stephen. No. Oh, the, the well, film. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Julie Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies. Lovely comedy. Uh, Babylon, Fableman's Royal Hotel. Great Australian thriller. Mm, I've um, heard of it. The Killer, Past Lives, Pearl, which we've talked about many times on the podcast. And Eileen was my six. Um, do you want to start with your number five? Yeah, sure. So I went with something a little different uh, this year uh, because I'm not a big list person. Uh, my top five generally change day to day. So I decided to pick five films that sort of best represent why I love movies or love going to the movies. You know, epic stories, being scared, a great love story. Nicole Kidman here, Jesus. Uh, I know, yeah. Um, uh Sort of a something, something good in a place like this. It does. It yeah. does. Yeah, in this podcast studio, um, that we have to rush through because I was late. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, sort of a complex film that's forced you to think and ask questions of it and yourself, and then just uh, my overall favorite of the year. So, uh, I'm going to start out with something a uh, movie near and dear to my heart, Babylon, um, the 2022, 2023 Irish release date. Uh, Damien Chazelle epic sort of silent cinema into sound story. Uh, so Manny, played by Diego Calva, is a studio gopher for Kinoscope Studios in 1926. At one of its executives' debauched parties, Manny meets self-proclaimed rising star Nelly LaRoy, played by Margot Robbie, established leading man Jack Crawford, played by Brad Pitt, African-American jazz trumpeter Sidney Palmer, played by Joe Van Adepo, and lesbian cabaret singer Lady Feijou, played by Lee Jun Lee. These chance meetings establish Manny in the studio system and lead to the rise and fall of everyone he meets at the party as cinema moves from silent movies to sound. If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. Yes! Let's go! Something that lasts, that means something. You know, when I first moved to L.A., you know what the signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. Good morning. Good job for you. I'll do anything. That's the cocksucker they said to screw us. Yeah! This bitch is stealing the scene right from my mimi. She's icing her nipples so they perk up through her dress. I ain't icing my nipples. This is natural. What do you say we come in for my close-up now? 
So it's sort of an epic story about the beginning of feature films as we now know them and the birth of the monstrosity that is the studio system as we now know it. Uh, so it's a colourful, hedonistic black comedy that has 189 minutes. minutes. Definitely feels shaggy and definitely feels yes. epic. Um, it's that one straining and energising and absorbing. It never feels like it's putting shocking stuff in it for the sake of it, I would argue. Uh, anyone that knows anything about it, or maybe it is. And, you know, just as a, a quiet little fuck you to... Whoever doesn't like that kind of thing. Um, there was there was one walk out of my screening where that guy was eating rats in that underground dungeon party and this <laughs> yeah. old couple got up and left. Um, and so anyone that knows anything about ho- old Hollywood would reasonably expect that these kind of parties fueled by champagne and cocaine happened, but that maybe not all of them involved elephant shit. Um, first scene. I know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, literally the first five minutes of the film, this guy gets shit on by an elephant and you're like, well... I know where this is going. Um, I liked how long and epic it felt. It was even because, like the Wolf of Wall Street, it might be full of things that aren't completely necessary or that people might not want to see. But God damn it, it's never boring and always fun to watch. Um, and we've often talked about how the scene where Nelly fights a rattlesnake in Babylon feels unnecessary and should be cut. But then the full film would be missing the establishment of a relationship with the Lady Feiju, as well as Margot Robbie fighting a rattlesnake. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. Eric yeah. Roberts. Eric Roberts, yeah, yeah. Do you think every time... I saw a tweet earlier this year that was like, every time, you know, he's doing like, uh, Dr. Death 3, um, <laughs> yes. Hospital of Nightmares, and then every so often he goes on to a film like Babylon, and he's like, ooh, catering. <laughs> yeah, like inherent vice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's full of like, I know that faces that... Uh, some of whom we will eventually do, such as Lucas Haas, Max Mignella, Catherine Waterston, Toby Maguire, Flea, Jeff Garland, Eric Roberts, as mentioned, and Samara Weaving in a lovely bit of stunt casting opposite Incredible. Margot Robbie. And, uh, and then casting Spike Jonesy as an insane German director is the cherry on top of this cake so funny. that always feels like it's about to topple. Yeah. For sure. Great soundtracks. So yeah. My soundtrack of the year, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Real jazzy. I, Just to be honest, yeah. I think I pref- I love Oppenheimer's soundtrack the most. I think. Oh, that's a good yeah. tune too. Yeah, can you hear, hear the, music? the music? Yes, I can. <laughs> um, so good. Yeah, yeah, no, I love Babylon. Um, a real movie that really grew in my head. I think first time I watched it, I was like, my kind of debate was that like, is Chazelle? Because I, you know, I've seen La La Land, and it's mm. such a lovely movie. And then you see this movie that's really depraved, and it's really throwing in the face all the depravity. And I was a little bit like, is this authentic Chazelle, or is he just trying to shock? But the more I've sat with the movie, and the more like, there is a point to everything. Mm. And yeah. you know, he is, and he's making a point that I don't think I've seen a movie make before, which is that like movies are incredible, mm. but like the system that makes movies is inherently messed up. Yeah, and it always has been. Yeah, which is cool. And yeah. and uh, I really love the ending as well. Um, my number five is How to Blow Up a Pipeline. So this is an indie action thriller based on a nonfiction book of the same name by Andreas Malm. Haven't read the book, but it, it functions as a criticism of the current nonviolence and pacifism in the uh, climate activist movement, arguing that sabotaging devices that produce CO2 emissions to discourage new investment in them is a logical form of climate activism. And so using this source material as a jumping off point, writer-director Daniel Goldhaber, who made a pretty good little horror movie a couple years ago called Cam. Did you ever see that? I've heard of it, I think. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. And his co-writers, Jordan Soule and Ariella Barrer, crafted this action thriller about a group of young people, one of whom, sort of the lead character, is played by Barrer herself, um, who gather at a remote cabin in West Texas for a few days in order to execute their plan of blowing up a pipeline. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Boom Talk. Today, teaching myself to make a homemade blasting cap. And if this works, it'll be step one in making our own improvised explosive. 
Might be headed to Texas for the winter. What's in Texas? This project. What kind of project? Try to stop the pipeline from being built on my property. Poisons the air, water. Damn, this place is sick. You guys cooking meth in here? You ready to start working? We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big. Michael, what do you think the odds are we blow ourselves up? I don't really care. And um, it has the same structure a heist movie might have, so the character's efforts in and around this like Texas cabin to pull off the job, you know, preparing explosives, taking out the oil company's drone, um, shutting off the pipeline's flow so that when it explodes, there's no like local pollution. This is juxtaposed with flashbacks throughout the film as to why every character has committed to this plan. And um, I think in a heist movie, it would be like, I need money to support my sick family. Or, you know, I want to fulfill my dream of opening a business. Here, it's like, some of the people have been made sick or have had relatives made sick by pollution. Some have had their land destroyed by pollution. Some like Mom in his book are just frustrated that this pacifist approach is just like not working. Mm. And then um, they're just members of the team that are like adrenaline seekers, you know, like and they're played memorably by uh, Christine Froseth and Lucas Gage and they kind of provide the comic relief. Um, I love crime thrillers generally, but I think adding an eco element to them can make them more interesting and give them a greater depth because the characters are committing these actions not out of personal gain, but out of altruism, like in their view to help and you know protect society. Mm. And you can have that same debate within the movie that society often has when it comes to these sort of radical environmentalists um, that commit actions like this. Is that like, is this terrorism or as Barra's character says in How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is it an act of self-defense? But even putting all that aside, like incredibly well made the scenes where they handle the explosives in this have the same sort of tautness as the sequences in one of your favorites William Freakin Sorcerer mm. you know the, their anti-heroes are like transporting the nitroglycerin screenplay does this very clever thing where for the present day sequences prepping for the explosion the film is just like dropping the viewer immediately into the situation without too much exposition you know from the title the basics yeah. of what's happening like it's very process oriented like you're just watching them through this whole stressful process and um, there's this like incredibly tense score by Gavin Breivik which is a mix of distorted synths and recordings of oil drums being banged in the desert. Um, really cool. But um, this is all cut with flashbacks, which at first you think might just function as sort of explainers for as to you know how the characters got in this situation. But as the film continues, the flashbacks become stealthily key to understanding the group's overall plan. And it has a few tricks up its sleeve in mm. that respect, which I loved. Um, a shout out Bower, Froseth, and Gage already, but the whole young cast is terrific. Sasha Lane is in this. Um, she's always great. Uh, to me, though, the standout mm. cast member is uh, Forrest Goodluck, probably best known for playing Leonardo DiCaprio's son in The Revenant. Huh. He plays Michael, the group's self-taught explosives maker, and he's a uh, part of the group because his Native American reservation is being polluted by a big corporation. And he's really angsty and antisocial, but also like reserved and quiet. He only really speaks when he has something important to say. And... It's these elements and this like incredible focus that he possesses that makes him really good at handling explosive materials and just a really interesting, captivating, dryly funny performance. Um, I, f- I think I floated the idea to you of maybe doing our own Oscars oh, yeah. episode yeah, yeah, yeah. this year, yeah. and I, 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 he would be a contender for me for best supporting actor. Yeah, um, cool. and like every movie in my top five, um, really memorable final scene hmm. here. So yeah. Uh, yeah, that's my number five. Yeah, number cool, four. sure. So my number four is Godzilla minus one. Hell yeah, yeah. 
So kamikaze pilot Koichi Shikishima, played by Ryonosuke Kamiki, feigns technical issues with his plane and lands it on Odo Island. That night, almost the entire garrison except Koichi is killed by an enormous dinosaur the locals call Godzilla. Two years later, Koichi is living with fellow survivor Noriko Oshi, played by Minami Hamabe, and a child they rescued from the ruins of Tokyo. Working on a minesweeper ship and plagued by survivor's guilt, Koichi and his crewmates, the kid, played by Yuki Yamada, the doc, Hidetaka Yoshioka, and the captain, Kuronosuke Sasaki, encounter Godzilla a second time, and this time he's bigger and angrier. With tensions high between America and the Soviets, it's up to the ex-soldiers and sailors of Japan to take the fight to Godzilla. So this year was bookended by two great moments in horror movies. The first was the Megan doll singing Sia's Titanium in Megan, uh, which is very funny. And the second is less funny and more in line with the horror genre, and that's uh, Godzilla roaring at the sky after devastating Tokyo with his atomic heat ray, while a black radioactive rain begins to fall as Koichi screams at the sky in tandem with the monster. And it's like, yes, cinema! And also, Jesus Christ, the nuclear metaphor. Um, so it's a remix of the original 1954 Godzilla movie that also takes clear inspiration from Jurassic Park in its opening sequence, Jaws in a middle-of-the-movie boat chase sequence and Dunkirk in its climax, but it also resolutely remains its own beast. And Godzilla Minus One is obvious in one sense in the monster's metaphor for nuclear weapons and their devastating consequences, Uh, but like the original film, it expresses something inexpressible in its destructive action and melodramatic performances. Um, The attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were devastating war crimes that killed tens of thousands of people. Japan is unfortunately unique in its status as the only nation thus far to have a nuclear weapon used against it as an act of war. And the effect this kind of attack, let alone two of them, can have on a country, its population, and a population yet to be born, is inestimable from a cultural standpoint. And Japan would not be the same country it is today had it been spared these attacks. Uh, Godzilla is only one part of the cultural response to the bombings, but he is also the most famous. Um, And throughout his 70-year history, Godzilla has been many things. A metaphor, a monster, a hero, and a goofball. Um, Much like 2016's Shin Godzilla, however, Godzilla Minus One returns the creature to his horrifying roots as an almost unstoppable force of destruction, repaying mankind's atomic crimes in kind every time he leaves the ocean. Uh, Only the will and determination of the ordinary Japanese people can hope to defeat the monster where the military might, or lack thereof, uh, has failed to do so. So it's nationalistic and certainly can be seen as advocating for increased Japanese militarization, which historically has never been a good thing for Asia and the wider world. But it's also a certified crowd-pleaser that wears its heart in its sleeve and is unafraid of tackling big displays of tough emotions. Uh, it's frankly no better or worse than Top Gun Maverick in terms of being military propaganda. But it also has similar fist-pumping, cheer-worthy moments that Maverick does. And it also has one thing Top Gun Maverick doesn't have. Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, uh, I didn't get a chance to see it in mm. cinema yet, but I'm hoping I will still because it's, it's, it's been a big big hit. And yeah, it's been really nice so. to see that and Boy and the Heron mm. doing so well in like it got released in like the Odeon my, my local yeah know? same here yeah so uh, that's really cool yeah I saw Godzilla minus one in IMAX in my Odeon ah amazing yeah it's like the dream I think it, as much as you can like criticize like, streamers or whatever I do think Netflix has helped with um, people are more open to checking out something in a foreign language now than they yeah, might have been a couple true. years ago yeah um Night of the Twelfth, speaking of uh, foreign language movies um this is a French crime thriller based on a true crime book um the movie actually won six awards including best film at the Césars the you know, the mm. French version of the Oscars um, the movie begins with the uh, grisly murder of a young woman named Clara played by Lula Cotton Frappier as she is walking home one night in a sleepy French suburb she was burned to death and an opening Jesus I know it's 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 pretty shocking opening yeah. to the movie and an opening title card states that this was one of many unsolved murders in France so from there we follow 
two cops investigating the killer, Johan, played by Bastien Boulion, a young, fresh-faced, recently promoted police captain, and Marceau, played by Bouli Lanier, um, an older, hot-headed, world-weary detective. And um, this movie is directed by Dominic Moll. I was really impressed by it managing to be so compelling and engrossing from the jump, despite letting viewers know that Central Mystery is going to be an unsolved one, and um, the ways in which Moll and his co-writer, Guillaume Marchand, managed to accomplish that. Uh, Bill Gaibiri did a very good review of the movie in which he compared it to Memories of Murder and Zodiac, stating, It's real-world mysteries eventually become existential ones, but the film never stops sending chills up your spine. I think it's so on the money, because as the cops investigate Clara's murder, they interview multiple suspects, uh, men who are in Clara's life. And one suspect is a rapper who wrote a song and posts online describing killing Clara in exactly the same way she was murdered. Another is a history of domestic abuse. One can't stop laughing while being interrogated, but all of the main suspects have alibis. Okay. And Johan and his team are shocked at this, with uh, Johan saying at one point, like, none of them did it, but all of them like, could have done it. Mm. And also at points in the movie, Johan catches members of his police team making jokes or speaking dismissively about Clara and her death. And the movie becomes a portrait of how like shocking crimes like this can often highlight big issues in society. In this case, this kind of deep-rooted misogyny. Um, at one point, Johan is summarizing the case for a judge who encourages him to like revisit the investigation after some time has passed. And he says something's wrong between men and women. Um, so it's exploring a very important, always very timely topic. It also comes a movie about just the toll this case takes on the investigators and their frustrations at not being able to deliver justice. It's it's like for Johan and Merceau, this unsolved case is like throwing the cosmos out of whack for mm, them. Yeah. Um, Maul manages to make the movie feel very um, visually compelling and dramatic without ever being sensational. It has sort of a somber procedural like tone, a bit like Spotlight, but there's like nice little visual motifs that run through the movie. Um, Johan lets off steam by cycling around a racetrack in a circle. And it's a good metaphor for him kind of running mm. around in circles in the case, yeah. never moving anywhere. It's like a hamster on a wheel. There's also two moments in this movie that are just among the most unsettling things I've ever seen. Or at least I've seen in a movie this year. Um, they both revolve around mysterious figures emerging from darkness at shrines for Clara while they're being under surveillance. And they feel like they could be out of Memories of Murder or Zodiac. Mm. Um See, it's a very impressive piece of work, and I'm surprised it hasn't shown up on more end-of-year lists. Yeah, I remember you ranking it really highly and then just kind of never finding the time for it, I guess, which is really my own fault. Yeah. Anyway, onto something... Be be better in 2024. Apologies. (laughs) Um, Anyway, onto something a bit more cheerful. Um, Asteroid City is my number three. Okay. Um, So bereaved war photographer Augie Steenbeck... Uh, played by Jason Schwartzman brings his teenage son Woodrow played by Jake Ryan and three young daughters to the Junior Stargazers convention in the southwestern American desert town of Asteroid City there Augie meets actress Midge Campbell <sighs> Midge Campbell <laughs> Scarlett Johansson and a great many of the other characters too many to name here uh, while under quarantine after an alien played by Jeff Goldblum and puppeteered by Kim Kukilur steals the eponymous asteroid of Asteroid City Junior Stargazers and Space Cadets Each year, we celebrate Asteroid Day, commemorating September 23rd, 3007 BC, when the arid plains meteorite made Earth impact. Holy Toledo, that's Mitch Campbell. You're very good in the one about the tramp in the brothel who gets amnesia and becomes a pediatrician. You were very awesome. Actually, maybe my favorite character ever. I don't know why nobody else liked it. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. What's happening now? I don't know. 
So that's a really simplified plot breakdown. Asteroid City is actually the title of a fictional play written by Conrad Earp, played by Edward Norton, and directed by Schubert Green, played by Adrian Brody, the production of which is documented by a 1950s TV anthology show about the arts. This frame story gets a bit looser the longer the movie goes on, but I will admit that it's Wes Anderson's maybe hardest film to get into in terms of like how it's framed. I agree. Thank you, Stephen. Um, so why do I like it so much? Oh yeah, I have to answer that. Uh, <laughs> there are similar themes here that appear in his previous work, namely grief, love, fractured families, the wisdom of the youth, uh, the wisdom of the young even, and the selfish folly of the supposedly mature. But it's here that I feel that these themes are the most fully developed out of all his films. More than his usual stable of players, Anderson now attracts big talents from outside his fears, such as Johansson and Tom Hanks, that he easily absorbs into his broken clockwork worlds. And... Obviously, we're more used to seeing the likes of Willem Dafoe's ferrety weirdos, Adrian Brody's suave losers and Edward Norton's neurotic authority figures than we are to Hanks's choked emotion or Johansson's disaffected depression. But that's part of what makes Asteroid City so special and unique. Anderson's willingness to update his playhouse with passing stars while keeping the bedrock of his cast so solid. And the main themes of the movie play out through these broken people trying at last uh, to fix themselves and finding reasons to keep living in an isolated desert town. Really is Anderson's bad day at Black Rock or Paris, Texas. Um, it's the youngest stars that shine the brightest here, however, where Augie, Midge and the other other adults' grief and, and ennui threatens to collapse them and turn them into black holes. It's the young love of Woodrow and his crush and fellow stargazer Dina, played by Grace Edwards. Clifford, played by Aristo Meehan, um, who is JJ's son, uh, who's played by Liv Schreiber. Uh, fear of being unnoticed. And Ricky, uh, played by Ethan Josh Lee, who's um, Roger Cho's son, who's played by Stephen Park. Uh, open defiance of the US military industrial complex that uh, feels so funny and inspiring and just fills it fills you full of hope. And I should also mention Augie's three young daughters who regularly and chaotically steal the show in the movie. Um, and I think much like my choice last year of Decision to Leave, uh, my choice of Asteroid City this year might confuse some people particularly Stephen. Uh, and again, that might be due to the film's ending. Um, or maybe you just like the film for an entirely different reason. Who knows? Um, anyway, without spoilers, my here's my in- interpretation of it. Um, if, if anyone be- can benefit from it, I hope you do. So there's, a, there's the lines towards the end where um, the actor playing Augie Steenbeck, also played by Jason Schwartzman, uh, turns to Schubert Green and says, I don't understand the play. And Schubert Green says, it doesn't matter. Just keep, keep telling, telling the story. The story. Yeah. And the refrain of, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, uh, are linked. Inextricably, you might say. So Asteroid City is a film at its heart about grief and trying to find a way out of that seemingly endless darkness. And grief will often leave people in a state of numbness, almost a state of sleep, if you will. And as we all know, you, cannot, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. So what's important on this road to recovery is not the destination, the cure, um, if you will, uh, but the journey. Augie might not understand why he needs to go through this and neither does Jones Hall, the actor playing him. But as we can interpret from Schubert Green, it doesn't matter if you don't know where you're going or how you're going to get there. You'll know the where, why and how at the end. For now, just keep going. Just keep telling the story. I dislike a strong. Like, I enjoyed the movie as I was watching it because, like, obviously, performances are great. looks mm. amazing. It is a bit like Black, Bad Day at Black Rock in terms yeah. of the aesthetics. Um, it was the first Wes Anderson movie for me where the framing device didn't really click. And I was a bit like, I kind of would rather have just watched them in the desert. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I can see kind why. of kept 
I was actually getting invested in like my hawk and Rupert Friend and then the movie keeps being like this is fake <laughs> I was like alright but um, I know people are having deeper readings of it mm. so maybe it would benefit from a rewatch and you know French Dispatch um, was a movie that kind of grew, I wasn't mad on and it kind of grew in my yeah, head since it, I've seen it, it, it so. they, they grow in your mind uh, I think all Wes Anderson movies grow in your mind like I didn't like most of the or any of the shorts he did this year, the Roald Dahl ones. Uh, but I'm sure if I watch them again, I'll find new th- new things in them. I only saw two of them. I like the Swan. Um, it's a Rupert Friend one. He's been bullied. Pretty oh, good. yeah, 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 yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Hello, my name is Dave Coffey and I'm the host of Phoning It In, the hilarious improvised phone-in show. It's like Joe Duffy's Liveline, except we make it all up on the spot. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 episodes featuring some of the best comedy performers in the country. People like Kevin McGahern, Alison Spittle, Killian Sunderman, Shane Dan Byrne, Joanne McNally, Michael Fry, Emma Doran, Peter McGann, Hannah Mamalus, Tony Cantwell and so many more. Join me, Dave Coffey, for phoning it in right here on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I know that fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I know that face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month, when you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Mine number three is Leave the World Behind from writer director Sam Ismail, best known for creating Mr. Robot, and he adapted this from Rumin Alum's 2020 acclaimed novel of the same name. It centres around a New York family called the Sanfords, uh, comprising of two kids and their parents, played by Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts, who um, rent a secluded idyllic house in Long Island for a getaway. However, while there, a strange thing happens, and then at night, they are visited by a man, uh, played by Mahersh Ali, who uh, owns the house, and his daughter adult daughter, played by Malala Harold, and they basically explain, like, look, we know you rented the house, but there's been a blackout in New York City, and could we stay here with you? And the film basically explores the relationship between these two families who don't really trust each other in this secluded house as society around them appears to collapse. Oh, this is nice. Kids look so happy. The Wi-Fi isn't working. So sorry to bother you that this is our house. This is your house? We were driving back to the city, then something happened. You want to stay here, but we're staying here. We need to get them out of here. They need to think everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay, isn't it? 
We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. Apparently the novel is less about the apocalypse but more about how characters deal with an apocalyptic situation they don't understand. Boring! (laughs) And the book is said to stick pretty close to the characters and as such doesn't really provide answers about like what has led to society collapsing. Mm. What Esmail has done is um, very ambitious. You know, he's like taken this character-driven intimate source material and has stayed true to it while also blowing out the story into the type of thing that you might see in a big budget Hollywood movie like Bird Box or The Happening or uh, the 2023 movie we both like Knock at the Cabin Um, so he's done that by one huge stars you know Roberts, Hawk, Ali, Kevin Bacon, who I didn't mention, who um, has a small but pivotal part in the movie and just reminds us why he's one of the greats. Um, two, adding in several huge set pieces, um, while also staying pretty close to the rental home. Three, sprinkling into the story more hints and Easter eggs as to what could be the cause for the apocalypse, while also remaining enigmatic about the whole thing. And four, uh, getting Netflix behind the movie, who can just stick this in front of as many eyeballs as possible. And um, yeah, critics seem to like it. Although I, I know some are frustrated with the changes to the source material, audiences in general seem extremely polarized on it. Um, mm, yeah, many, for sure. Many people seeing it as kind of all, all build up, no payoff. Um, maybe just because I love these kind of B movies of ordinary people trapped in a mad sci-fi situation, and especially when like an auteur is making them. Mm. But um, I loved this pretty much across the board. Like I think in the movie nails the big visual spectacle. There's a sequence where an oil tanker runs aground, spectacular. There's a action scene involving self-driving Teslas that's amazing. The movie split up into sections and the second of which is called The Curve and it's centered around multiple characters leaving the rental home on these kind of separate journeys. And even though I wouldn't call Leave the World Behind a Horror per se, like it's the most dread-inducing scene I've seen in the movie all year. Um it features incredible homage to Hitchcock, North by Northwest. Um but I think the movie's as strong in the claustrophobic parts. It's kind of asking, like, can basic human decency persist in the face of rapid societal collapse? Roberts' character, Amanda's misanthropic. Um, she has this maybe slightly overwritten monologue at the beginning of the movie, which ends with her saying, I fucking hate people. <laughs> and she's very distrustful of Ali and Harold's characters, G. H. Ruth, um, when they show up at her doorstep and you, you wonder as a factor of that, like, racism. Um, Bacon plays, like, this doomsday prepper who lives nearby who... Um, Ali and Hawk's characters go to desperately for help and Bacon turns them away and Ali's character is like come on man we know each other we're friends and he's like that's the old way George you're not thinking clearly nothing makes a whole lot of sense right now when the world doesn't make sense I can still do what's rational which is protect my own and the situation turns into a Mexican standoff and Hawk starts crying being like I have no idea what to do right now (laughs) I can barely do anything without my cell phone I'm a useless man (laughs) great stuff Um, all sounds grim and tense but the film is also quite funny and very humanist in parts there's a whole subplot about how Amanda and Clay's that's Hawk's character's young daughter, uh, Rose, played by Farrah McKenzie, has just binge-watched Friends and has only one more episode left. And it, it starts as a joke because society is falling apart around her and she's like, I really need to see a Ross and Rachel like end, you know, yeah. like, how does that happen? But then it becomes this very sincere depiction of how people crave comfort and entertainment in times of crisis. I know some people hate the movie's ending. I wish I could talk about it more in depth without spoiling it, but um, I think it's one of the most unique, thought-provoking things I've seen in a long time. So, yeah, three. Fair enough. Behind. Do you want to head straight into your number two? Because it's my... Or, That's fair. Or, yeah, because yeah. num- your number one is my number two. So Exactly. I'll just talk about my number one after this and then we can talk about your number one. Perfect. Um, Tar. So, oh, um, yeah, I have seen that. Yes, uh, revolves around a very renowned figure in the world of composing and conducting named Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, an Oscar-nominated mm. turn, who faces an increasingly public reckoning. We have a problem. I received another weird email. 
there's no reason to get caught up in any intrigue. I'm worried. She's starting to disappear into herself. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. You've got to sublimate yourself. Your ego and, yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. This garnered a lot of acclaim, but also provoked a lot of discussion for its explorations of topics that have dominated talk around the entertainment industry in the past years, like cancel culture, separating the art from the artist, power dynamics. Explores these matters with a lot of thought, but also in a way that's not hand-holding to the viewer and puts a lot of faith in audiences that they will engage with the film story and come up with their own interpretation about what that all means, what they should take away from it. And uh, I don't think a lot of movies do really do that anymore. True, yeah. So I think that's one reason Tara stood out to me. Um, and I also think Leave the World Behind and my number one is a bit like that too. But I think what really struck me about Tara is it's just peculiar, distinct tone. Because like on one level, everything that happens to the Tara over the course of the movie feels rooted in the real world. Like I think someone could watch this looking for a straight up drama and feel very satisfied. But the movie is shot, edited, scored, and even written when you think about like how it presents information to the viewer and the way characters like pop up throughout the narrative. In a way that feels very hazy and uncanny, mm. almost like we're in Lydia Tarr's subconscious, like it's like a nightmare she's having or we're watching her in her head, like try to manage this repressed guilt that she has. And those dreamlike elements and the everyday elements exist simultaneously, but never clash. It's like the movie's operating on like two different planes of reality. And um, it's incredibly basic comparison, but the vibe reminded me of love Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, which Todd Field is in. Yeah, he's that's the true. piano player. Yeah, Nick Nightingale. Mm. Um, and then the other thing about Tara is just Kate Blanchett's performance. Uh, maybe one of the greatest, fully fleshed out, distinct acting roles I've ever seen. Yeah, that's um, true. Characters love contradictory things at once. She's sort of a satire of an artist with an inflated ego. I start the clock. <laughs> um, but you also never doubt that she is extremely talented. Um, she's absolutely awful to a lot of people in her life, but is also very compelling and entertaining to be around. And there are moments. Like when she confronts her daughter's bully where you're watching go like, go get him, Tara. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's tough and fiercely cruel, but also cringy and very vulnerable herself at times. And Blanchett threads a needle between all those things. And, you know, without spoiling, like it's not only that Lydia Tara goes on a big emotional journey throughout the film with many different stages, but Blanchett creates a character that feels so lived in from the very first moments. But then over the course of that film, suddenly minds more and more greater depth to the extent that calls into question what you thought of her at the beginning of the movie. Mm. And like, I think she's the reason why Lydia Tarr has taken on a life of her own. Like there are multiple articles online being like, no, Lydia Tarr is not real. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was the fake Twitter account that posted as Lydia Tarr. And then the people who ran it, I imagine, got fed up of doing it. And so then they said that she died. And then news outlets covered it. <laughs> and... um just also like trifecta of incredible female supporting mm. performances like Nina Haas as Lydia's wife and fellow classical musician your beloved Naomi Merlant as Lydia's increasingly fed up assistant <laughs> and Sophie <sighs> Sophie Cower as young cellist uh, as a young cellist that like Lydia becomes fixated on mm. also Mark Strong awesome in yeah. this movie terrible wig though as always well, here's I literally had written down he plays this like investment banker, amateur conductor who helps fund Lydia's orchestra. Most perfect wig I've seen for a character, maybe. Just in terms of like, you can tell he's like an investment banker, but he's like creative. Yeah, the, the wig yeah, is the yeah. way you get the hair is how he expresses that. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. so yeah, no. Five I love out of five. the bit where at, towards the end of the movie where um her brother comes home to their like shitty home in yeah. New York or whatever, and he's played by Todd Field, I think. Maybe. Uh, I'm yeah, not sure about that. I, it was like 
from far away anyway and he goes uh, oh hey Lorraine sorry Lydia <laughs> and it just turns the movie on its head it's like oh so it's all been a lie <laughs> yeah, it's so good um, do we do want to do Oppenheimer or actually I have the plot for it if you want number two no go ahead yeah yeah Oppenheimer um, Christopher Nolan's historical epic thriller about theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer played by K. Murphy and his role in overseeing the development of the first nuclear weapons during World War II and also what happened to Oppenheimer after these weapons were used to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki we're in a race against the Nazis and I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. If we don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? What do you like about Oppenheimer? Um... What I like, what I like about Oppenheimer, um, well, I don't know. First of all, I don't know what it says about me or the year twenty twenty three. But the fact that three of my favorite movies of the year all deal either tangentially or directly with the development of nuclear weapons is, it's, I think it's concerning. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think like that sort of fear of nuclear weapons, like the the doomsday clock that some of the Chicago Trinity scientists uh, came up with after. World War Two um, is like the closest it's ever been to midnight, which is like a metaphor for the closest work we are to a man-made human catastrophe. Um, and that sort of that fear forms the core or nucleus, if you will, of Oppenheimer. And I think this core is like orbited by two different stories, one from the point of view of Robert Oppenheimer and the other from Louis Strauss, who's played by Robert Downey Jr., uh, his perspective. And from wide, almost disparate beginnings, we circle closer and closer to this core, which, to be frank, had an, an atomic impact on me, that ending. Um, so I went, I went to see it with two friends who thought it was good. Um, and I think it has grown in at least one of their estimations since. But um, the ending left me pretty shaken and feeling like someone had just poured boiling water into my skull. It felt like my synapses were on fire. Um, it's a masterpiece in terms of like editing alone. But once you factor in the performances, the music... Can you hear the music, Stephen? The cinematography and how Chris Nolan smashes it all together like atoms against each other in a fusion bomb. It instantly becomes one of the best films of the 21st century. Yeah, I know. What a cast. A cast, an endless parade of guys. And a cast where it's like everyone needed to be famous because you really need to like see these guys one time and then know who they were if they show up later in the movie. Um, No, really liked it. Obviously, it's my number one. I loved it. Yeah. It was okay. Because I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Nolan generally, mm. but I do, I like, you can never really fault like the acting, the editing, the, the imagination that he has. Yeah. And I love his kind of mathematical plots where it's like, you know, Tenet's all like inverted, you know, Memento's told in reverse. Dunkirk is like the air, the sea, the land. And then the minute when they all like come together, it's yeah. just like magic, mm. you know, at the end. But sometimes like I find Key that- Key meat lock. Yeah. But, but mm. I think, I don't, th- every time I think he strives for kind of like an emotion or- a kind of human messiness I think sometimes the movies tend to fall apart mm. like I never re- I don't really like the boats bit in the dark night I'm not that mad about Interstellar um, 
and also I think he like he has kind of bad female characters or like there's a lot of dead wives and stuff. That's true. Um, but if there's no dead wife, how can he feel pain? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, but what I mean to say was like I thought Oppenheimer was like a real step up in terms of like I thought it was really sprawling. Mm. I thought it was really, um. Not emotional in that, like, I'm rooting for J. Robin Oppenheimer. I was worried the movie would be kind of sympathetic towards him. And I think the movie is, I guess, not judgmental, but also not sympathetic. Like, yeah, I think he's, yeah, he's yeah. like, an awful person. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. a womanizer. It, it, yeah. he's, he's arrogant. He's cruel. But you forgot you do, brilliant. Yeah, but you, know, <laughs> but you do kind of feel through Kay Murphy's, like, performance, yeah. like, the guilt, the... um the kind of mental disintegration the paranoia yeah, grow throughout yeah. him and that stuff is really powerful and like Emily Blunt I think is uh, I do I do again think the female characters do get short shrift yeah absolutely yeah, but yeah. Um, I think at they're this better, stage though, yeah, if, the, they're better though at this stage like oh, he's what 24 25 years into his film career maybe he's just bad at writing women hmm. and we all just need to accept that and move on to be frank yeah I agree yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think Florence Pugh as well like um, in her brief scenes in the mm. movie leave such a huge impression and then you really feel her absence yeah Andrew's Ms. eyes were really big <laughs> um, but uh, it just it feels like Nolan you know read that mammoth book American Prometheus which is what this is based on mm. biography of Oppenheimer and just spent years working ahead to take its most compelling parts and fit them into a movie that could sustain all of them and I think he cracked it and the proof is that Oppenheimer is maybe 11 of the most compelling scenes I've seen in a movie like in yeah. years yeah. Um, and yeah, that's kind of everything I wanted yeah. to say. Okay. Yeah, no, so um, yeah. huge fan of Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. grand. Do you want to do your number one? Yes. So my number one is Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese's even more epic, uh, somehow, well, certainly longer, uh, movie about um, Ernest Burkhart, who returns home from the first, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who returns home from the First World War to live with his uncle, William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, on the Osage Reservation, where the local Osage Native Americans have become wealthy thanks to the mineral rights to oil beneath their land. However, many of them, including the family of Ernest's wife, Molly Kyle, played by a wonderful Lily Gladstone, are being murdered so that their white spouses or family or friends can take the land rights. The Bureau of Investigation sends agent Tom White, played by Jesse Plemons, to see about these murders and see who's doing them. The Osage, they have the worst land possible, but they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it, black gold, money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. It's just going to be another tragedy. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. to kill these white men who killed my family. I need you here. I am right here. So the two big building blocks of the United States of America are the genocide of Native Americans and the transatlantic slave trade. And without these, the so-called land of the free and home of the brave would not be what it is today. And in terms of what it's attempting to portray from the perspective that it's coming from, Killers of the Flower Moon does it about as well as it possibly can 
while uh, uh, considering who it's made by, um, while retaining Martin Scorsese's unmistakable and unique gift for visual storytelling. Uh, so it can be hard to compare it to anything else as there are so few movies and TV shows about made by and starring Native Americans and even then most are about the contemporary North, uh, Native American experience namely the poverty and prejudice that defines the lives of so many that live on or off the reservations these days and there are a few films that directly address the long term genocide that took many forms in the period between the European settling of the North American continent and today Killers of the Flare Moon is by far the longest and best of these few there's a point halfway through the film where Molly's last remaining sister and her family are killed by a bomb planted on Ernest's orders. And when Molly's, Molly's told, she lets out a long, this long wailing scream that the edit mercifully cuts short. And it's a moment that's so raw and exposed, so devastatingly vulnerable that it feels like you shouldn't be watching it. And all you want to do is turn away, but there's nowhere to turn to in a cinema, really. And it gave me chills then, and it still gives me chills now. When I was writing my notes, I was like, ooh. Um... And it was the moment I was convinced that the movie was a masterpiece. The sprawling nature, however, of Killers of the Flower Moon allows for more than complete and utter misery, however. It's a very funny film. Shockingly so sometimes. That bit where Louis cancel me is like, what if I adopted these kids and they died? And he's like, are you confessing that you're going to kill your children to me, Louis? Or whatever his name is. It's like, Jesus Christ. I know the press screen. I saw that press screening and I got a big kind of gallows laugh mm. and then everyone was sort of like, Ooh. I feel bad for them. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um... It has gorgeous sweeping cinematography and an incredible score. And were it not for, as I said, Oppenheimer's endless parade of guys, it would have the most surprising cast of the year. Gene Jones, Jack White, Larry Fessenden, Pat Healy, Tatanka, son of Russell, Means, John Lithgow, Brendan Fraser, and again, Louis Cancelly. All it's missing is Graham Greene and Gil Birmingham, but I assume Taylor Sheridan is keeping them busy. <laughs> um, ultimately, it's a movie about the rotten heart of America, about how the white settlers poisoned the soil for the continent's native inhabitants and for their own future descendants. And there's no real righting the wrongs done in Killers of the Flower Moon. The Bureau of Investigation show up and do too little too late. Fewer prosecuted, fewer are jailed. And that's true to life. And its ending shows that. Um, all wounds can heal and form scars, but the pain can remain. And that seems to be what Killers of the Flower Moon is saying. We can try and make sense of how greed and complicity and cowardice can turn men like the Burkharts and Hale into paternalistic mass murderers. But catharsis remains impossible because of the nature of time, essentially. And there's no ending here, only Molly's scream echoing into eternity. Um, I thought it was very good. Yeah. My only issue is, like, and I've said this to you before, uh, to, and you go and like, rolling your eyes, um, I never really get why Molly Burkhardt is interested in Leonardo DiCaprio and does not suspect him in these crimes that are happening. Mm. I've seen people argue that, like, oh, well, there is this reasons, but just watching it for the first time, mm. I didn't get that. But maybe on a rewatch again, kind of like Asteroid City, it would become more clear. Yeah, in fairness, the book never really addresses it either. I think it's it's a kind of a bug of... Because that's a very short part of that book, mm, isn't it? Yeah. And then they kind of blew that out. And I mm. think they never kind of fundamentally cracked that. And I do think... you And people will be like, it's based on a true story. And I understand that, that mm. this did happen. But I don't yeah. think the movie, I bought the way... Scorsese depicted that. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I did think it was a great, great film. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, email I know the facepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please leave us an iTunes rating if you would be so kind. For those who want more of the pod, sub to Heads Up Plus for five euro plus tax a month where you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes of the show. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? Find me at the Heads Up Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it, as well as at fortniteflights.wordpress.com where the next movie I'll be talking about will be The Curse of Frankenstein. You can check me out at joe.ie. Uh, see you later, Sinfuzz. Bye bye.
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.